benefits. Um, so, so welcome. Today we're going to talk a little bit about treatment of parasitic infections. Uh, there's a much catchier title in the uh, in the handouts or in the um, catalog, but this is kind of what fits a little bit better on the screen, so I just went with the generic here. Um, my name is Charlie Mosler. I'm a faculty member at the University of Finley College of Pharmacy, and um, predominantly I usually teach geriatrics. Which you're like, what in the world is going on with this then? Um, and, and so kind of backing up a little bit longer, back when I was in college, um, I had the opportunity to do a, a couple medical missions trips. Uh, one was to Honduras and one was to Haiti. And so that kind of got me into this realm a little bit. And then as I started to grow up a little bit more, um, took a, a faculty job um, at the College of Pharmacy and Thinking back on the opportunities that I had, I continued to go on medical missions trips um, in, in the, the, about the 10 years or so after I graduated, before I started at the university. But one of the things that I remembered not learning at college here in the United States is this sort of thing, right? Treatment of parasitic diseases, treatment of malaria, um, it, going through all those different things that many of you see outside of this country way more than you're ever going to see in this country. Um, and so today's, today's topic really comes from, from kind of hoping to, to help you guys with some of the things, especially the college students, with some of the things that I didn't learn in school and, and to help you in your medical missions careers or journeys, whatever those may look like, um, throughout your, your lifetimes. And so looking at, at treatment of, par of parasitic diseases, again, we're fortunate, fortunate enough to live in the United States, or many of us are, where we don't typically see a lot of these. Now, having said that, 2020, 2021, definitely one of these medications is in the frontline news all day, every day. And so now everyone's heard of ivermectin, whereas we had, we had this discussion a couple years ago, uh, many people would not have. And so this is kind of the objectives that we'll look through. Um, looking at parasites in general, um, there are hundreds, if not thousands, right? I mean, these are just some of the ones that are more common. Um, some of the ones that are maybe, maybe I cherry-picked a little bit, some of the ones that are easier to treat. Um, many parasitic diseases are not necessarily real easy to treat. Um, malaria is a whole giant discussion in and of itself that I've done hour-long talks at this conference before on, and so kind of skipping malaria here and just focusing predominantly on the three or the four that are listed there for those of you who have your glasses on. Um, Chagas disease, Giardia, Leishmaniasis, and then worms of various types. Now, many of those you can see here in the United States. I'd say really with the exception of Leishmaniasis, we don't typically see that a whole lot here. Um, but Chagas disease, uh, when we get talking about it, there's estimated to be 300 to 400,000 people in the United States living with Chagas disease. Um, most of them are immigrants to our country, but, but some of them potentially maybe um, have got it while they've been outside as a tourist. Giardia, um, I heard someone, I'm not quite, don't remember which direction it was coming from now, but talking about Colorado. Uh, if you get up into some of the, the mountains of Colorado, if you see that nice, inviting, ice-cold river water, creek water, and you're like, oh, I need a drink, that's where you can find Giardia. Um, Leishmaniasis, again, not a whole lot of that in the United States. Uh, many troops uh, who are coming back from serving, I shouldn't say many, some troops who have come back from serving in the Middle East might have had Leishmaniasis while they were there. Uh, so much more prevalent in that area of the world. And then worms. Uh, worms are things we can see in the United States. 
especially probably more so in livestock. Um, many of you, if you grew up on a farm or anything, you probably remember uh, treating livestock for worms. Um, children a lot of times can get pinworms. Um, not necessarily real uncommon, uh, but outside of that, a lot of those, those worms are, are fairly uncommon here in the United States. So nice segue into worms. And so looking at these different types of worms, we have our nice little hook worms, the pin worms, tape worms, and, and the ascaris or the round worms in the top left there. I forgot to mention, these slides are all online, so if anyone wants them, um, you're able to go on and download them. Um, there might have been an older edition once I got thinking about it this morning and I forgot to update it. There might be a few things that I've, I've switched around since, um, since then, but predominantly they're pretty much the same. So looking at worms as kind of our first topic uh, for the day, looking at roundworms, uh, kids, where can they get, get it? They're playing in the dirt, right, and, and ingesting of soil, ingesting um, the, those eggs that happen to be in the dirt can definitely happen that way. Fecal oil route, um, again, that's largely sometimes what actually is happening with that, that soil. And it's just maybe not a direct fecal oral route. Um, estimated to infect up to 1 billion people in the world. And so when we think about our problems here in the United States, this is definitely not one of them. But when you think about one out of every seven or eight people uh, in the world potentially has some sort of infection with worms, this is a pretty big thing um, around the world. Symptoms. Many people are infected with worms and they don't even know it. Uh, and that's the type of worm you want to have, I guess, if you have to have a worm, all the way up to intestinal blockage, where you need to go in, and that person has to have surgery to move this giant ball of worms uh, that is stuck somewhere in, in someone's small intestine, large intestine. Hookworms, same sort of thing, really, as the roundworms. It's, they're transmitted typically from eating soil or coming in contact from a fecal oral route. Um, estimated infect half to, to 750 million people around the world. Can you be infected with more than one type of worm? Yes. So there's probably some overlap with, with these worms and, and as, to how, excuse me, as to how many people might have both of those. Uh, again, symptoms pretty much nothing. Up to uh, hookworms, you're more likely to see some anemia with it. And many of you have seen that probably in children especially or pregnant women around the world uh, who might be experiencing some anemia due to worms. Tapeworms. Typically, you're transmitted by eating undercooked meat. This is what you can see here in the United States sometimes, in meat that was not prepared properly um, and was contaminated, um, and the animal was contaminated at the source. Um, tapeworms generally, uh, a lot of GI issues, right? So a lot of patients will complain about sort of indigestion-like symptoms, uh, looking at problems with their bowel movements. Tapeworms can get into the CNS, and once they get into the CNS in some individuals, they can cause uh, seizures. And so you have to also have to be very careful about treating a person with tapeworms if they have suspected CNS, because that can bring on a rash of other symptoms as that tapeworm starts to die. If it is in their brain, then it releases all these toxic substances, and that can also be a, a problem for that patient as well. Pinworms. Itchy, scratchy um, butt syndrome is what I call it. Um, so it's a different sort of IBS in, in that it's the itchy butt syndrome instead of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so typically um, you'll see preschool age kids, they're going around and they're digging, right? And so that might be a sign of pinworm. There's also other things that can be causing that, but you will look at your um, toddlers in whole different lights now. 
Treatment of worms. You know, each one of these could really be its whole one-hour individual sort of topic, and so we're doing a pretty broad overview of these. But for the most part, we use the same medications for uh, just about all these worms. They all can be pretty well effective uh, for most of them. Treatment may involve supportive care, especially in the case of that individual who might have a CNS sort of infection with their tapeworm. And so most commonly used medications, albendazole, mabendazole, popular drug of the year, ivermectin, uh, pyrantol, pomoe, and then praziquantel are the five that are we typically see uh, most commonly used for humans. Those of you who have animals, again, you might see other worm medications that are being used for those, and, and many of those are out there. They're approved for animal use. They're just not approved for human use. So let's first look at albendazole. Uh, so albendazole is one that many of you have probably seen. It's available really um, in, in most of the countries, at least the countries that I've been in. I definitely have seen albendazole at one point in time or another. Um, the nice thing about albendazole is it's, for the most part, kind of a, a one-dose treats most. Um, and so looking at roundworm, hookworm, pinworms for the most part, uh, you do one dose now. Uh, with pinworms, you also then will typically try to repeat it in two weeks, and that usually just has to do uh, with the pinworm eggs, how well they are, because they're, especially in the case, again, of a toddler, those eggs are probably pretty well ingrained in the carpet and the furniture, um, and so they're e very easily going to reinfect themselves, and that's why you typically do a, a repeat dose for the pinworms. Tapeworms, the dosage for albendazole, really depends on what that patient is exhibiting. If they are exhibiting CNS sort of effects, um, you're going to see different dosing. If you have a patient who just is having some GI effects, you're going to usually see something similar in size to the 400 milligrams for one dose. PEDS as well, um, you can see that the dosing is pretty much the same for adult and pediatrics. We don't really have to worry a whole lot about dosing cha dosage challenges uh, with the, the smaller kids. Side effects of this medication, GI upset, as we can see with just about any medication. That's one of the things the students quickly learn in pharmacy school is when, when in doubt, guess that that drug is going to have some sort of GI symptoms. Um, and, and this is definitely one of those. Uh, some of those GI symptoms, though, are not necessarily always due to the drug, but they're also due to those worms dying. Um, and so that is, is a good thing to have, but it can also cause some temporary sort of, of symptoms. Pregnancy, uh, don't want to use albendazole in, in a pregnant woman. Lactation, um, be careful. Uh, it's not really known for sure. There's not really good evidence. Uh, just be careful with it. Probably safe, uh, but it's definitely one that in general we're not real sure about. Uh, availability, again, U.S. and around the world. This is a drug that you can easily find just about wherever you're at. Looking at a drug that sounds very, very similar, um, mabendazole, um, structurally very, very similar to albendazole. And so um, what you see here from a dosing perspective um, is, is in general similar. This one, though, typically you want a patient to use twice a day for three days uh, and then maybe repeat it um, as, it, as that, in case that symptom does come back. Uh, and so sometimes uh, you'll repeat this in three weeks. It's not an absolute. You don't necessarily need to do it. Um, so those of you who are going on short-term mission trips and you're like, well, do we need to have this person come back in three weeks? Uh, it, it, again, just kind of depends. The, the lighter the symptoms are that a person has, then in general you may not need to repeat those. 
pediatrics, again, very, very similar dosing to the adults. Side effects, pretty much the same. Pregnancy, this one we definitely try to not recommend in a woman who's in her first or second trimester. Um, third trimester is thought to be safe, uh, but first or second, uh, we, we definitely try to stay away from this one. Uh, lactation, again, used with caution and availability. This is another one that many of you have probably seen uh, in quite a few countries. Ivermectin. Um, so looking at the adult dose, um, this one really is only indicated for roundworm. Um, in animals, you can see ivermectin used for different worms, but in, um, the FDA, World Health Organization, really only recommend using this one for roundworm. Uh, some of that's due to resistance patterns that we've seen with other worms, and and some of that is just due to they just don't work as well with other types of worms. And you can see here from the name, ivermectin. doesn't sound like albendazole or mebendazole. It's a, it's a different um, anti-helmetic drug class. Um, so weight-based dosing is what we typically try to do for um, roundworms, 200 micrograms per, per kilogram, but it's nice and that's just one dose. And you just kind of are going to have to round to the nearest strength that you can get that patient to. Um, pediatric uh, is, is a lot less weight-based, which is interesting. Um, more so just pick 100 milligrams and give it to them twice a day for three days and then may repeat it in three weeks. Side effects. This one causes um, a rash in some individuals. It's not an anaphylactic-like reaction like you might see with some antibiotics. Um, it's more just a, a, a reaction, um, a skin reaction, probably somewhat due to a histamine release, uh, but again, not a true anaphylactic reaction. Um, those of you who work with uh, other medications, morphine is another drug that can cause a big histamine release. It's not necessarily an allergic reaction, uh, but it's definitely something that you might see in some of these individuals. So rash, itching, and then fever. Uh, first time we've talked about fever as a result of this medication. So again, um, then other than that, GI headaches, which is not necessarily uncommon. Pregnancy, lactation, not real well rec recommended. And then uh, availability, U.S. and worldwide. Now, right now in different parts of the, of the United States, it can be hard to find. Uh, and that's just the way it is. Worldwide, I haven't read anything about worldwide availability recently. I know um, previously, pre-COVID, um, it was very easy to find pretty much around the world. Parantopamoate is a drug that we don't see as much of here in the United States, um, but it is available as something that you might see more often uh, in a different country. India, uh, parts of Africa is, is fairly prominent. Um, looking at this one, this one seems to be pretty effective for both hookworm and pinworm. This is another one that's weight-based dosing, and so 11 milligrams per kilogram. Um, this one's just once a day, uh, times one dose for pinworm, and for hookworm, you're usually going to want a patient to do it for once a day for three days in a row. This one does have a max of, of one gram per day um, in an adult patient as well as in a pediatric patient. So looking at peds, very, very similar sorts of dosing. Um, again, max of one gram per day in those uh, younger patients as well. Side effects, uh, again, for the most part, mostly GI. I feel like I'm repeating myself. Uh, but that's pretty much what we see. Again, these you see these worms, um, when you see the GI side effect, these drugs are not real well absorbed systemically. And so it's not real surprising that you see mostly GI sorts of side effect. This one can cause some headache in some individuals, so which is always interesting um, how the, the brain and the gut sometimes are interrelated. Pregnancy, this one's thought to be okay. This is probably one of the reasons why you might see it used. 
Um, this one's probably all right for both pregnant and lactating patients. Praziquantel. Um, this one is the one that, for the most part, we just use for tapeworms. Uh, so our patients who have some sort of tapeworm infection, um, you see milligram per kilogram dosing, and you see a range. This has to do with what is actually going on with that patient. If they have a GI-only um, sort of thing, then you're going to realm on the, the lower side of that range. If it's um, more systemic than just GI, then you might need a little bit higher dose. So you got get good enough absorption outside of the GI tract. Um, side effects, the lower dose, mostly GI. As that dose goes up, that's when you start seeing some of the CNS effects. Again, we might want this drug to get into the CNS in some cases. And so that's why you might start seeing, so, so seeing the, some of those CNS-related effects is a good indicator that you're getting some uh, penetration into the CNS. Pregnancy, uh, this is another question mark sort of one. It's probably okay. There's definitely case reports of women who are pregnant who have used this medication and there is no harm to the baby. Um, but again, we don't really have good data suggesting that it is for sure okay. Lactation, try to stay away from. Availability, again, um, is, is U.S. And, and worldwide. This is not the most common drug you're going to see here in the United States uh, when it comes to antihelminics, but it is something that you can potentially see. Talk a little bit about where is the treatment of, of worms going. Um, hookworms. I gave a very, very similar talk um, to this one back in 2012 here. And this slide, unfortunately, hasn't changed a whole lot from 2012. Um, looking at hookworm, there's a vaccine in development. That vaccine's been in development for a long period of time. It was first talked about... Oh, I, I believe the literature is from 2005, 2006, and is being looked at. Um, there's a bunch of researchers or a group of researchers in Australia who are kind of looking at this this vaccine for hookworm. Uh, when you start trying to read more about it in the last two or three years, obviously vaccines have been refocused and probably taken away a little bit from looking at this sort of thing. There's not really, I couldn't find anyways, any good um, resources as to where that vaccine is at currently um, after about 2015, 2016. Um, another uh, tapeworm vaccine was also being looked at. There is a group out of Australia as well, uh, as well as India looking at a vaccine to treat tapeworms. Their vaccine was specifically in pigs, uh, but again, hopefully that's one of the situations that if, if we can get a, a vaccine for pigs, can we then use some of that knowledge to um, make a, a vaccine for humans? I always think of West Nile virus. Not definitely one of the things we're talking about today, but West Nile virus is a disease that we have a vaccine for horses, um, but yet we still don't have a vaccine for, for humans um, at this point in time. And so Interesting how some of these things start to develop. Last little bullet point here, I'd feel I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about actually using worms for a purpose. And there's some really good information, especially with inflammatory disease, especially with inflammatory bowel disease, whether it's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, uh, where there are researchers, um, Ohio State, Cleveland Clinic, um, University of Michigan, a bunch of them are infecting people with whipworms on purpose. One of the theories behind it being um, these patients who have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, that gives their overactive immune system a, a true target. Instead of attacking itself, let's go after these whipworms. And so these patients will knowingly, willingly ingest whipworm eggs and amazingly enough, their Crohn's symptoms um, start to go down. 
And so, the, again, the theory is now the immune system is attacking the worms instead of the patients. And so it's, it's interesting. I think it's something that we might see being used more prominently in the, in the next five to ten years um, once people get over the idea of, I'm drinking worm eggs. Um, the interesting thing about those whipworms, uh, we haven't really talked about whipworms, I guess, today, but those whipworms um, that they're using for these studies, they don't r- reproduce within the human GI tract. And so every three to four weeks, they're still trying to figure this out, they have to, again, drink more whipworm eggs, um, and then they'll hatch, and then they'll do their thing, and you'll see them floating around the toilet. How fun would that be as well? But, again, if you're a Crohn's patient, an ulcerative colitis patient, um, you're pretty happy to not experience those symptoms. All right, Chagas disease. Um, this is one that we uh, don't necessarily see a whole lot of, uh, what, what the fancy term is autochthonous spread here in the United States. That just means that we get it um, without traveling outside of the country. Um, estimated to be um, 300 to 400,000 uh, patients here in the United States who have it. Again, like I said earlier, many of them are thought to have, have got it elsewhere and then uh, immigrate to the United States. This is the triadamine bug, the kissing disease bug, um, and that's the, the culprit that can bring it on. And so you see here um, how it can bite the person, and then they get this itchy spot, and then it gets the, the basically you itch it and you get the poop um, into your eyes or, or other uh, mucosal orifice, and, and then you get these starting to grow on you. And, and New York Times did an article several years ago calling it uh, – the new AIDS of the Americas, is that what this is? Um, so it's definitely something that we see and is causing a lot of problems. So this one is, is not a worm. This is a protozoal parasite. Um, so similar, similar, and that's a protozoa to the malaria parasite, um, but definitely not familial similarity. Um, transmitted by a triatamine bug found only in the North and South America. So this is a, a disease of this um, hemisphere. Uh, similar, though, in style to the trypanosomiasis African sleeping sickness that we can see um, in, in other parts of the world. So uh, similar sort of protozoal parasite, but a different one. Estimated that up to 10 million people were affected, probably even more than that. Uh, some World Health Organization statistics um, state that it could be 10 to 20 million uh, people who are affected. Uh, generally presents as a mild infection with fever and then swelling at the site where, it, where that person was bitten at. Um, that's what's known as the acute phase, where that patient just has those symptoms, um, where you have some swelling. Um, a lot of times you see it around the, the eyes, around the face, uh, because when that, this bug tends to bite at night. And so what is uncovered, what is exposed at night, tends to be the, the face. And so you can see these sorts of symptoms um, in, in a patient. So definitely swelling at the site of infection. Um, if left untreated, this is where this disease becomes a problem. Um, can cause arrhythmias, can cause heart failure, can cause esophageal and, and uh, colonic problems as well. Uh, there was a study done in Los Angeles County, California, several years ago, and I forget the exact number off the top of my head right now, but somewhere around, of, they were estimating at least 5, maybe 10% of all patients with heart failure in um, Los Angeles County, California, actually was a result of Chagas disease. And so that's just kind of interesting, kind of a scary sort of statistic. Uh, the Carolinas are another area of the country where we tend to see a lot of Chagas disease um, in patients. And so arrhythmias, heart failure, obviously. Uh, we get some uh, cardiac sort of, of confrontation with this disease. 
once it gets into the, the chronic phase. The chronic phase can be years um, after that patient had, was initially bitten with that bug. So it doesn't show up right away. Um, patients, again, that acute phase, they'll have maybe a swollen eyelid, something like that, and then it goes away. They tend to not necessarily have a whole lot of infections initially. And then a certain percentage of our patients who had that will then go on and, and get on this chronic phase where it can start to uh, affect the heart. Prevention um, generally is difficult. That's the best thing we can kind of do right now is try to prevent um, that. And so generally try to eliminate some of these areas where these bugs live. Um, the triatamine bugs, they love thatch roofs. And so in, in parts of the, of the world um, or parts of North and South America where you have thatched roofs, that's where you're much more likely to see infections with this bug. But again, um, even they can get in in other places as well. It's not just thatched roofs that they're going to live at. All patients with Chagas disease should be treated. And so this is one of those things that, yeah, your initial infection may be relatively asymptomatic. You may not really have any symptoms outside of a swollen eyelid, some sort of swollen spot next to your lip. Um, but, and again, and that goes away. That tends to go away for most of our patients within a week or two. However, they've now been infected and they have this trypanosoma parasite, the protozoa, floating around, living in their bloodstream. That can target cardiac tissue. And so we really want to try to treat those uh, patients as early as we can. If we are able to treat them in the acute phase, then hopefully they don't go on to get the chronic phase where we start to see the cardiac and GI issues. Um, if they develop GI issues or cardiac issues, we tend to just treat the heart failure or the arrhythmias. If it shows up as an atrial fibrillation or a ventricular tachycardia, we tend to just treat those as we normally would treat those diseases. Um, the disease, just because it was caused by Chagas disease, isn't necessarily treated any differently. Same thing if they get heart failure. We're going to treat that heart failure uh, with beta blockers um, and, and other medications that we commonly see used for a heart failure patient. Um, treatment, so if we catch this disease early enough, um, that's usually going to prevent that chronic case. Um, the statistics say 60, 85%. Some of the newer statistics tend to be much higher than that uh, with the medications that we have available. And so, again, treating that patient um, early on is very much hopefully not going to lead to uh, the chronic phase. So medications that we have available are benzonidazole and nifertamox. Um, benzonidazole... Uh, was a drug that uh, prior to 2017 you could only get here in the United States by going through the CDC. Um, it was approved officially by the FDA in 2017, uh, beginning of 2018, and now you can actually order, um, you can actually get a lot easier. It's still not necessarily easily accessible. There tends to be a lot of issues with supply of this medication. It's not one that they're able to manufacture in good quantities for whatever reason. Uh, dosing of this one, um, you can see there is a, a weight-based dosing. Again, same sort of dosing for both kids and adults. Um, give it two times a day, and then they get it for two months. So it's twice a day dosing for two months. Um, Benzonidazole is what we typically want to use, or is one of the options that we can use. Um, side effects of this one, uh, for the most part, tend to be relatively benign for most people. Um, now, if you are one of the small percent, um, all those are less than 5% that you uh, could get any of those side effects. Um, but obviously, if you got insomnia from this drug, having insomnia for two months is not something that might be pleasant. Um, 
Pregnancy, we don't know for sure. Lactation, we don't really know for sure either. Uh, again, probably safe, but risk versus benefit um, of, of using this medication during pregnancy. Uh, availability, again, not necessarily the easiest drug to get here in the United States, but much easier than it used to be in that we don't have to go through the CDC. Uh, it's just a, an availability issue whether or not we can actually get it as a pharmacy from our wholesaler or not. And then generally widely available elsewhere. So this is a drug that tends to be available uh, in much more of the world, a lot easier than it is here in the United States. This one, um, to get the best absorption you can, um, you should take it with food. That also seems to help prevent some of the GI side effects um, as well. Nifurtimox is the other medication. This one was just approved last year in 2020 by the FDA. Again, prior to 2020, we could get this drug here in the United States um, through a, a new drug approval process, um, or I'm sorry, an investigative new drug approval, or investigative new drug process um, through the CDC. Um, now, this is a medication that you can, in theory, get from any pharmacy. I doubt most pharmacies are going to stock it uh, here in the United States, but it is something that they can potentially order in when needed. Uh, adult dosing versus pediatric dosing. Uh, it's always interesting when a pediatric dose is a higher milligram per kilogram um, than the adult dose. Um, they just require more of it. They tend to metabolize this drug a little bit more quickly than an adult will. Um, and especially in, that's only the age of, of 10 to 12. Side effects, uh, again, for the most part, most people take this drug and they don't have any side effects. Um, GI, headache, dizziness are all less than 5%. Polyneuropathy is less than 1% of patients seem to get any of that. Uh, but again, if you were a person who, had to, who got polyneuropathy, um, that would not be fun. All these side effects, including the neuropathy, go away with time. And so if a patient were to develop that, um, they might experience it for, for the 90 days or so while they're taking it. Um, but then usually after, it can take months, but it tends to go away. It's not like some of the other neuropathies we can see with some other medications where they might have it for a long time, potentially life. Pregnancy lactation, again, unknown. Um, and then availability in the United States and elsewhere is, is fairly easily accessible, fairly easily found. Similar to benzonidazole, uh, this one tends to work a little bit better as well as have fewer GI side effects if the patient takes it with food. Looking at Chagas disease, um, again, unfortunately, this slide has not changed a whole lot since 2010, 2012. Um, many drugs are in process. There are several good articles. One was just published in 2020, end of last year, um, in a pharmacology journal um, that talks through eight or nine different uh, medications that are currently in clinical trials. Uh, unfortunately, they're all really pretty much in phase one, phase two. They haven't progressed much beyond that at this point in time. Will they? Hopefully at least one or two of them might be things we talk about in the future, um, but so far not. Uh, one of the drugs um, is, is called VNI, and that's from Vanderbilt University. Uh, this one is the one that seems to probably be the most promising, uh, but as similar to the vaccines with worms, there's not a whole lot of recent data been published, so I don't know where this is at, but one of the, the studies, or several of the studies they've done with this medication, at least in a uh, mouse model of this disease, um, were showing a pretty good cure rate. In fact, in some cases, 100%. Um, but again, that's a mouse model, which doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot for humans. So again, it'll be interesting to see where the future of Chagas disease go, goes. So roughly halfway point, let's see who's still awake. Um, why should all patients with Chagas disease be treated even if they are currently asymptomatic? 
Is it A, prevent spread to others? B, prevent long-term complications? Uh, C, the treatments are cheap, so we may as well use them up. Or D, we don't want Chagas to get into the water supply. B, very good. I assume everyone said B. Uh, prevent long-term complications. Again, that's the risk with heart failure. Um, the, the, big, the, the biggest risk, again, is heart failure um, and arrhythmias that can come from Chagas disease. Did you have a question? Yeah. Yeah, so they can they can actually look. So the, the question has to how do we really diagnose Chagas disease? And so they can do a blood smear and, and look for the trypanosoma parasite. Um, if the possibility is there, there's RT-PCR testing as well. Um, I don't don't know that. And that's something I hadn't thought about. Is there any sort of rapid testing available for Chagas disease? Uh, has anyone seen any rapid test for Chagas? It's not something I came across. No. Okay. Yeah, so I think I think a lot of times they're they're looking at, at smears for this disease um, is the quote unquote easiest way. All right, Giardia. Students always think I made this thing up, but no, it kind of looks like it's smiling at you. Um, and so you have again, in, in looking at this would would probably be some sort of, of fecal material here. You have lots of smiley faces at you as they're causing you all kinds of grief. Um, so Giardia, uh, again, can be found in the United States, especially Western U.S., where you potentially have cattle um, whose feces are getting, infected cattle whose feces are getting into the, the water supply, and then when you're out camping, um, that's when you can potentially get this if you are not properly treating or filtering your water um, from that. Again, most of the world or a lot of the world has problems. I want to trip myself here. Uh, most or a lot of the world has problems with good, clean water, and so that's much easier to see how that can get into their water supply and cause problems. So another protozoal parasite, um, Giardia lambia. Um, there's a, if you really um, want to learn something uh, from today's lecture, uh, one of the best things you can do is, is go to YouTube and search for Giardia song. Um, that song will live in your brain for a long period of time. Um, but it is rather catchy. Um, so, Transmitted again through the fecal oral routes, typically an animal uh, who has left some droppings uh, in, in water or it's rained and that has f uh, flowed into, the, into a river. Um, so you get actually injected by the, infected, not injected, you get infected by the cysts um, and then those cysts will go about and do their thing. To put all these sort of things into perspective, you guys are healthcare providers, so you're, most of you I'm sure are, so... One to ten billion cysts, that sounds like a lot, um, but that's how many patients, I'm sorry, how many cysts one patient can be releasing or one animal can be releasing. Um, it's thought that as few as ten cysts are needed to cause an infection. And so uh, in today's world where everyone's talking about how much of this you need to catch to really catch whatever disease, uh, if you have one animal or one person that's excreting one to ten billion cysts, and then you may only need ten cysts, um, to, to actually become infected, uh, you can see how one person with Giardia or one animal with Giardia could really spread this um, quite easily. Yeah, and so that's that's why, because it's um, looking at how few might do it. So one cyst in a smear is considered clinically significant. Is that 
Uh, estimated 200 million people infected. Again, it may very well be a lot more than that. Many patients live with watery diarrhea, and they don't necessarily know a whole lot different, so they don't know um, to report that symptom. Um, presents as, as gastro, gastroenteritis. Uh, when it becomes real problematic is obviously dehydration. So that watery diarrhea goes to kind of the, the next level, and you have patients with dehydration, electrolyte disturbances, um, and again, other GI symptoms, cramps, vomiting, um, excessive gas as well. Interesting thing about Giardia is that uh, one of the, the symptoms of it is that a patient who otherwise previously tolerated milk might become lactose intolerant. Um, and so that's a, a kind of side effect, if, if you will, of this disease that a patient might complain of. Uh, that does go away after, with time, but it can take six months, 12 months in some individuals after the Giardia has been eradicated before they come back to being lactose tolerant. Yeah, many people are asymptomatic, so they may not even have um, excessive watery diarrhea. They may have relatively normal bowel habits. And so many people have this and don't necessarily know it. Without treatment, symptoms typically last four to six weeks. So otherwise healthy individuals, that camper who was out in the Rocky Mountains, if they don't go tell their doctor about it and they don't get any medication, this will probably go away over time um, if they're otherwise healthy. If they have some sort of autoimmune disease or other comorbid conditions, uh, then that's definitely a situation where it might have, have problems um, for a longer period of time. Prevention is very, very difficult. Um, so, again, it really depends on your water supply. If you have access to good, clean water, uh, then you're able to prevent this pretty easily. If you're not, then that, or if you don't have access to good, clean water, then this is a definitely a difficult thing to treat. Um, Giardia. Unlike Chagas disease, this is not necessarily a disease that we need to treat every single patient. If they're dehydrated, if they have symptoms of dehydration, such as confusion, low blood pressure, etc., um, then those patients definitely need to be treated. Um, but again, most patients who have active, healthy, normal um, uh, sorts of uh, autoimmune or of uh, immune response, they won't necessarily need anything. Rehydration is the big key. Uh, rehydration is what we want to do for all of our patients. Um, some sort of anti-peristaltic medication. I'm sorry, anti-parasitic medication. Don't want to use an antiperistaltic in this patient because um, you want them to be able to, to kind of clean themselves out. Um, but antiparasitic medications commonly used uh, that you might see metronidazole um, is, is one that we have used for a number of years and we've used it so much that we're starting to see resistance to metronidazole. So metronidazole is not a first-line sort of medication that you want to use for Giardia, um, especially here in the United States and, and some other parts of the world. Um, where there is some metronidazole resistance. Tinidazole is a newer version of, of metronidazole, if you want to think of it like that. And then nitazoxanide is another one that is a good GI medication for a lot of GI um, parasites. Others that you might see are listed there, peromomycin, furazolidinedione, um, quinacrine, and then albendazole. Um, which is, again, similar, usually used for worms, but has some st clinical structure similar to metronidazole, and so that's thought to be why it might work um, as an antiparasitic um, in this case. So metronidazole, again, isn't typically the most recommended medication, but it depends on what the resistance patterns are like. If you give metronidazole to some patients and it doesn't seem to help, then that's a pretty good sign that metronidazole is probably not the best medication to use for, for this disease where you're at. Um, but you may not have access or may not have, uh, your patients may not be able to afford some of the other medications that tend to be a little bit more pricey than metronidazole. 
Dosing for metronidazole is fairly similar to what we see metronidazole dosed at for other things. Usually it's just for a week, and usually it's just twice a day. So that's pretty low on the scale, scope of, of metronidazole dosing. Uh, pediatric patients is, uh, again, a weight-based sort of thing. They um, recommend it is to get it every eight hours. It seems in reading through quite a bit um, that most of the time just twice a day dosing is probably just fine for a, for a geriatric, for a pediatric patient. Um, side effects, mostly GI. Same sort of GI side effects that you would expect from metronidazole. Uh, the disulfiram-like reaction, so if alcohol is being used, that's, this is going to make them feel uh, very, very ill. Uh, yeast infections, uh, which you might see in women especially. Uh, pregnancy, not recommended for the first trimester. Lactation, not recommended, but again, it comes down to risk versus benefits. Um, if mom is severely um, ill, then, you know, and in danger of, of having fetal harm due to just being ill, then obviously the medication might outweigh um, the risks of, of that as well. Tinidazole, um, the nice thing about tinidazole is it's a one-time dose. Um, it's a pretty high dose, two grams, which most of your patients are going to get a GI effect. Um, if they drink alcohol within the first 24 to 48 hours after that one dose, they're also not going to feel really well. Um, but again, that's nice in that you don't have to worry about um, complications associated with the patient not taking their medication. Because again, metronidazole, one of the problems as well is the patient may not want to continue for that, that full week just because of how the drug makes them feel, the side effects of the drug. So this is at least a one-shot sh uh, one deal, but it's not a shot. Uh, pregnancy, again, not recommended for first trimester, not recommended in uh, a woman who is lactating either. And availability is U.S. or worldwide, but this one does come at an increased cost. And so uh, many patients around the world may not be able to afford this medication. Many patients in the United States, if insurance doesn't cover it, uh, may not be able to afford that or want to afford it. Uh, nitazoxanide is another relatively new medication. Uh, has a different mechanism of action, but is, is very effective for uh, this GI disease as well as other GI bugs. Um, adult dose, 500 milligrams every 12 hours for just three days. And so the patients only have to take this one for three days. Pediatric patients just take a 100 milligram dose for three days. Side effects, mostly an upset stomach uh, is what patients will complain about the most. Um, some diarrhea, but they probably already had diarrhea. So um, it's hard to tell is diarrhea necessarily uh, more or less than a patient who doesn't have giardia. Uh, pregnancy, this one is not real well systemically absorbed. It works just in the GI tract, and so we don't um, think that it's going to cross into baby at all, and so that's why it's probably okay for baby and that it's not um, systemically absorbed. Lactation is officially used with caution, but again, it's probably okay because we don't really see much systemic absorption of this medication. Availability, U.S. and around the world, but again, this one is new, and so it does come at an increased cost. All right, final sort of parasite that we'll talk about today. Um, and this is probably the, the rarest of the ones that we'll talk about today, leishmaniasis, um, but it's definitely one that can be quite severe. And so uh, patients can get these ulcers. They can um, get, you know, basically little, like, lumps um, throughout their skin. So another caused by a protozoal uh, parasite, leishmaniasis, um, there's uh, several different leash, leash mania um, within this genus that can cause these symptoms. Uh, transmitted by the bite of a sandfly, and so that's what you saw in this, this picture here, um, is a very tiny um, little bug. Um, it 
can be tiny. And so sandfly and can be difficult to see. So found throughout most of the tropical and subtropical world. Um, again, not something you're likely to see here in the United States unless you're dealing with a patient who, who got it while they were outside of the country for one reason or another. Again, a lot of times we see patients in the Middle East um, most commonly, but you can find this really throughout the world. Um, symptoms, skin sores, fever, enlarged spleen is one of the things that you can, uh, that a patient you might find has, has enlarged spleen on um, when you're doing, doing your workup of that patient. Four types of leishmaniasis. Um, you have cutaneous, you have diffuse cutaneous, you have mucocutaneous, and you have visceral. And so cutaneous is the most common, and this is where you get um, that reaction at the site of the bite. Um, the difference um, compared to a lot of other bites in that it takes a really long time for it to heal. And so that's when you um, start to suspect something else is going on. Uh, diffuse cutaneous will be the picture of that gentleman that was on that, that first slide. Um, resembles leprosy, and again, is very difficult to heal. Mucocutaneous, this is where now um, you're getting ulcers in the mouth, the nose, the throat. And then visceral is when you get it more within your abdominal cavity, within the liver, within the spleen, um, potentially uh, even can get into the bone marrow. This is the, the most difficult to treat, the one that can is most likely to be fatal if left untreated. Prevention is difficult. Vaccines, again, as we've talked about many times for these diseases, are in development but tend to not really be going anywhere fast. Um, treatment depends on the type of leishmaniasis, depends on where that person was that caught it, or when they when they got it, um, because that's what's going to delve into the, the treatment that's given. Um, medications commonly used, uh, one of the, the dirtiest drugs, I believe, uh, amphotericin B. This is at least the liposomal version is one of the ones that is what we like to use. Uh, very expensive, um, has a whole bunch of side effects that we'll see. Sodium stiboglucanate is another option, and then an antimony compound called meglumine antimonate, uh, miltefacine, and then peromomycin. Uh, resistance um, is an issue, and so you're starting to see an increased likelihood of resistance in some parts of the world. Uh, treatment should only be done by someone who's very sure what they're doing with these, because all of these drugs... Um, can be very toxic in and of themselves. So you really want to make sure that you're giving them appropriately. Um, and so don't be afraid to, you know, find someone or try to find someone who may have a, a lot of leishmaniasis treatment experience. Uh, CDC, World Health Organization, they have experts um, who are, quote, unquote, happy to take your call um, or email. Liposomal amphotericin B, uh, again, this is what's preferred for visceral disease. Um, and so when you get the visceral disease, this um, is, is hopefully the, the best chance that that patient has. Uh, but again, this drug is, is toxic. And so side effects, you see there are lots. Uh, you have cardiac, uh, detrimental cardiac effects. You have CNS effects. This one can cause seizures and other CNS effects. Uh, dermatologic um, can cause rashes kind of throughout the body and on top of a patient who, if they have visceral, they may also have some cutaneous symptoms as well. Um, endocrine, basically, if you, if you can dream up a side effect of a drug, there's a decent chance amphotericin B has it. Um, the liposomal amphotericin B is at least slightly um, safer, slightly better tolerated um, than the traditional amphotericin B. Uh, liposomal amphotericin B looks like orange juice. Um, it looks kind of chunky um, if you've ever seen it in an IV bag. Um, 
Pregnancy, probably okay, but again, very, very toxic drug. Um, make sure you're using the right drug in that patient. Um, unknown lactation, probably okay, but really not recommended. Availability um, is, is U.S. and worldwide. Again, money is going to be a big situation with amphotericin B. Sodium sibagglucanates is one that I've not really seen myself um, used for any reason. Um, but uh, stibagglucanate uh, is one of the preferred treatments for mucosal cutan or cutaneous disease. This one, um, you're using basically 20 milligrams per kilogram per day. Um, and I forgot to point out with the amphotericin, um, they're only getting it kind of like a pulse sort of thing. So they get it for five days, then you get it again um, on day 14 and again on day 21. So um, at least they're not taking it for 21 days entirely. Stibagglucanate, they are getting for usually 28 days um, for, uh, again, depending on the type, pediatric dosing is pretty much the same. Side effects, patients will complain of arthritis-like symptoms. Very, very common uh, that a patient's going to experience um, some inflammation or inflammation-like symptoms in their knees and other large joints, even small joints. Um, GI, QT prolongation, which is difficult to see when you don't have an ECG available, um, but it's something that you might uh, run across. Uh, Sodium-sibagglucanate is only available through the CDC here in the United States, so it's through an, uh, a new drug sort of a, a process. Uh, where this investigative new drug, and then worldwide, uh, depending on the area you're in, you may not be able to find it, um, or you may be able to find it. Uh, Leishmaniasis treatment continued, um, looking at meglumine antimony, or antimonate. Uh, again, here in the United States, this one's not even available. I don't even think you can get this one through the CDC, uh, but if you're in an area of the world where there is a lot of Leishmaniasis, this is something that you may be able to find in a hospital or clinic sort of, of site. Again, this is preferred for mucosal cutaneous, uh, and they're getting it once a day um, for, for three to four weeks, depending on the type. Side effects, pretty similar to the previous antimony drug, the, the stibagglucanate. Multifacine. Big thing here, definitely a known teratogen, um, so don't use this. GI Side effects, though, this is a drug that tends to have less side effects, and so um, this is, is helpful from that perspective uh, in that in many patients um, will just complain of GI things and not a whole lot of other things like we can see with the previous medications. Um, availability, again, this one in here in the United States has to be gotten through, has to be gotten, that doesn't sound like proper English, Charlie, uh, has to be obtained through the CDC, uh, but you can find it again in, in a lot of the rest of the world depending on the situation um, where you're at. Promomycin. This one is uh, the last drug we'll kind of talk about today. And so peromomycin, uh, visceral, cutaneous, not the most effective drug for leishmaniasis, but it is out there. One of the things that they're starting to use uh, this one for is as a topical application for patients with cutaneous. And so some of uh, military who got cutaneous versions of this, they were being enrolled in trials um, in the early 2000s. Uh, looking at topical peromomycin uh, for cutaneous, and it seemed to actually be working uh, relatively well. Uh, you can also use it, though, for visceral um, side effects. If you're using it topically, it didn't really experience any side effects. If you're using it systemically for visceral, uh, that's when you started seeing um, mostly GI sorts of problems. 
Availability uh, is, again, this one you can find just about anywhere. The, the, the topical uh, formulation you may not be able to find real well, um, depending where you're at and on its availability. Looking at future treatment of leishmaniasis, uh, World Health Organization, CDC, uh, again, similar story. They're working on vaccines. Those vaccines are currently being tested. Uh, none of them have made it past stage one that I'm aware of, uh, but it's, it's you know, past phase one, and so vaccines are all currently in that environment, but again, there's a number of them that are out there being looked at. Um, it's very difficult. One of the things that I didn't really mention, it's very difficult to make vaccines against protozoa. Um, malaria vaccines, you know, is, is something that was in the news relatively recently, um, and, and that has been looked at for decades. Um, and now there's just kind of one who's finally really making some headway there for malaria. Um, again, topical formulations for cutaneous, I think this is what we're kind of going to just because of the toxicity associated with systemic and the topical seems to work pretty well. Uh, and so that's, uh, I, I believe, something that's probably going to be more widely available um, in the not-too-distant future as well. All right, so that kind of wraps up what I had, which gives us some time for questions. If anyone has, yes, back in the back. Now there's money to be had. Right, right, right. And so, because I've seen cutaneous leishmaniasis in the room. So, is, is something that has also been looked at for leishmaniasis. And um, I don't think I ran across anything that was published since in, at least in the last 10 years about it. It seems to be something that kind of died out. Um, well, because the soldiers were getting it in Kuwait. Right, yep. That's why they started yep. looking at it. They had to give it for six weeks. Yes. Yes. Um, my name is Rebecca Chansey. I'm actually one of the CDC leishmaniasis Okay. Experts. Nice. Oh, so cool. Oh. I'd like to provide some updates. Yes, please do. Um, Miltepicin is available from Profunda, from Todd McLaughlin, and you can contact us and we can provide you his information. Okay. But it's not so Miltepicin is available commercially, Correct. essentially. Okay. Todd McLaughlin. And he has um, a package that is cheaper, so I've heard of people calling pharmacies and saying it's Right. It's not. He will provide okay. for a much discounted rate. So How is his information easy to find? Okay, so kind of contact CDC and gotcha. Cool. Sodium subagglutinate, the active product ingredient, has been contaminated and it's no longer being manufactured by GSK. And so it's no longer available through the CDC, unfortunately. So subagglutinate is not, so not available at the time. We are trying to acquire the megalumine antimonia, as you um, discussed. Mm-hmm. So there's not any good antimony products available currently, but hopefully that will change is what I'm kind of, okay. And the reason that's important is because right now with the Afghan refugee crisis and the migrants crossing the southern border, we're seeing quite a bit of leishmaniasis. Sure. And so I would like to help spread the word to everybody around the country that as you're seeing these migrants, we are seeing old world and new world leishmaniasis cases. And, you know, please contact us. We are happy to help with management questions. So you're seeing an influx of, of like, how many cases, would you say? Sure. Ten calls a week? That's a lot more than I would have guessed. Yeah, so. Please call us. Yes. So leishmaniasis. Nice. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, sir.
um, when you were talking about the ivermectin, mm-hmm. the roundworm, your slide, you said that for adults was 200 microgram per kilogram single dose. For pediatrics, your slide says 100 milligrams twice a day for three days. So for a 70 kilogram adult, they're going to get 14 milligrams once. And a pediatric is going to get 100 milligrams twice a day for three days? Unless I've screwed up somewhere. No, that's, that can't be right. I'm yeah. sorry, I don't want to say that we're calling out in front of everybody. No, you're fine. See how that so, it, it, I, I, I could very well have it wrong. It is 150 to 200 microgram per kilo for pediatric. So pediatric, this should be 150 to 200 micrograms. So a similar sort of dose to the adults, uh-huh. not the 100. That may be a typo from carrying it over here, I wonder. Yeah. So my apologies for that. Yes. So similar dosing, weight based for ivermectin, uh, 100 milligram twice a day for three weeks. This or three days is probably not right. It is not right. Thank you. Yes. I haven't seen, so the question is, is there a standard sort of thing to kind of, what do you do? Do you just pick one and give it, or do we usually go with this one? And, and I don't know that there's always a preferred sort of agent of it, or to use that I've seen. We give 400 milligrams of albendazole to adults. Sure. If, if they're coming through the routine, It's one of those things that's kind of unknown. And kids age two to six is two hundred. You're really not supposed to give it under, but if they got a really big belly and they're yeah. <laughs> a little extra. So yeah, it'll be interesting. I think um, the, the refugees, what all we end up seeing, what you guys end up seeing from that, will be an interesting thing, interesting, scary thing. I, I'm sure all of the above to, to see. Um, what sorts of new things or things come out of that as well that we all learn. All right, so I will hang out up here if you have more questions, um, but I'll get horn down here so the next speaker can get ready. But thank you very much for your attention, and see you all next time.